I am Wendell B. Harris, Jr., and you are listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as John Lithgow, Barbara Hershey, Robert F. Lyons, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. Now, let's venture back in time to the New Beverly Cinema where recording and filming is strictly prohibited and where Paul can be found talking between the screenings of his films Out of It and The Revolutionary. Links to the video are in the show notes. In the second half of this program, Paul is joined on stage by Barry Gordon, the lead actor in Out of It. This is the first time the two have met in person in over 40 years. What do you think about the screen, Paul? Well, this is a great audience. Uh, You know, when I see any of my films, usually... I hate them. So now I see what's wrong, how it could have been better, timing, shots like when Barry's kicking that ball, you know, all by himself, and they're all running around in a circle around him. I could have gotten a a close-up of John running. Yeah. You know, the contrast. Anyway, but, uh, you know, after 50 years, you know, I'm a little bit more detached, seeing it, so it was, it was more fun. <laughs> now, uh, we like to, if you have any, if any of you have questions, feel free to raise your hand. I, I can ask Paul questions as well. I'm, one thing, as I was watching it this time, I was thinking about how many films came after it that I feel like, whether they were influenced by this, or that this film just got there first, whether it's... The Graduate or Carnal Knowledge, which they talked about at the screens and at the Roxy, to you know, even like I see Shades of Risky Business and Woody Allen films and even Seinfeld. So it's easy to find the things that came after. But I'm curious about for you, what were the films that came before it that sort of inspired you to make this movie? Well, the truth of the matter is I'm not much of a film buff. I was a photographer. Uh, I was a very good photographer. And it led to all kinds of adventures for me. And, uh, and I enjoyed writing. And I enjoyed dealing with people. And unlike, you know, Scorsese or Spielberg or Francis, you really know a lot about movies. They love movies from when they were kids. They know all about it. Uh, I didn't have in mind being a filmmaker. I was admitted to Harvard Law School. But my girlfriend at the time said uh, she didn't want to be married to a lawyer. <laughs> so uh, I, I saw an Italian film, an only film, and I just, 
I didn't pay attention to the story so much. I just watched the characters and I watched the camera. And I said, oh, well, I could make a movie. I know how to move people around and I know something about psychology. And, uh, you know, my uh, girlfriend said, you know, no lawyer. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, I'll try the film for a little while. And when it came time to doing this, I had the intelligence to realize that I didn't know anything. And uh, so I just based it on my own experience. Pretty much every case you saw that it really happened. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> well, was, I wasn't quite Barry. Uh, uh, I think I was a little smoother, but hey, I think he did a very, uh, 50 years later, I can look at it and enjoy it. But it's a, Lindsay Anderson, who, who really loved the film, uh, he actually saw one that was uh, in his final cut stage. I had a scene where they're in the you know, the gas station where they're talking, and Barry says too much. The, the writing was, I told people too much what was going on. And then there was another scene, so, so two-thirds of the way down, I also had another scene that was too talky and explained too much what was happening. And Lindsay Anderson, I showed it to him, I was making the revolutionary in London. And uh, he said, gee, cut out that three minutes there where you tell the audience what you're going to do. And cut out that three minutes where you tell the audience what you're going to do. We'd like the film. So I cut out those two scenes. And man, the scene, you know, we were trying to discover what was happening rather than being told what was happening. And uh, so I paid that 158 prints change. But then John got cast as the Midnight Cowboy, and David Picker, who is head of United Artists, said, you know, John's going to be a Midnight Cowboy. When he comes out, he might be a star, and then you'll have a movie with a star in it. I said, you're crazy. This is the first 50s movie. They weren't any 50s movies. Uh, about well, I mean, by 50s movies, you mean like 60s movies looking back? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, they came three or four years later. Like, which ones are you thinking of? Well, I remember being with George Lucas about Francis's garage when he was cutting American graffiti. And he was doing a scene where, uh, you know, they put the, the chains around the cop car axle, uh, and then they speed by and the cops run after him. And it was a very funny scene. And, uh, and Francis said, yeah, yeah. you like that? I said, yeah, yeah, it's great, but this, this film's way too commercial for me. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't have my mind uh, set on the audience. I didn't have my mind set on uh, very much except uh, telling the story that happened to me. And that's what I kept doing. Uh, and of course, it was very interesting. They're interesting movies. But perhaps if I was on a different continent, they would have been <laughs> had a larger audience. But uh, so I can say that not. I mean, I watched a lot of films, uh, you know, Kubrick, and uh, uh, to watch how exactly they did the mise en scene and how they cut and. Uh, and of course, I studied acting uh, a bit. And uh, so anyway, I, that's the real answer. There really wasn't, I, didn't, I really wasn't a film guy. Well, let's switch. Oh, you have a question? Well, I just had a comment. Um, watching this, I noticed how different it was from other films of that era that reflected or showed teenage life. Like before this, it. The most honest representations, you'd have to go back more than 10 years before to Rebel Without a Cause and Blue Denim. And then there were all the beach party movies in the 60s, which seemed completely unrealistic. And then in this, you've got the awkward moments. And you talked about learning how to cut, but you also learned how to just sit in the uncomfortable moments. Yeah. And it seems like people don't do that anymore. And I'm not so sure they knew how to do it then like you did in this film. Yeah, yeah no, I must say, watching it tonight, I really thought the 
the excruciating uh, <laughs> aspect of the film works great, and the, uh, the, the taste and the rhythm of the scene. And the whole um, process, I'm sure we're all glad we're out of that phase of being a teenager, but yeah. learning how to read cues between each other and it's something that everybody has to go through. Right. And I'm curious now, 50 some years later with technology, if that's something people kind of skip uh -huh. because they just text to each other and they kind of negotiate, I'm gonna do this, you're gonna do that. And it, it kind of, we kind of miss that. Well, I'm no expert on that, but uh, I, 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 certainly the way life is lived now is very different from what it was in the <laughs> suburban, uh, late 50s, early 60s. 37 cents a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> so I there was something back there. Yeah, you, you had your uh, I just want to say this is the first time I've seen the movie. And I mean, it's been over 50 years. It reminds me of my high school experience. And it is the best portrayal of teenage love and romance and awkwardness and angst and so on that I have ever seen. And it's just amazing uh, that you captured all of that. And I, I particularly like the first comment talked about you staying on, kind of like you stayed on, you know. Yeah. For, excruciating <laughs> hours or minutes, but it, 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 it paid off. I, I have to tell you, when I watched that shower scene, I don't know if you saw it, but the soap kind of wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that really happened. <laughs> I mean, it really brought me back. It was based on a real scene that really happened. Really enjoyable movie. Uh, not only was this your first feature, it was also the first feature of Michael Small, the composer. Yes. Could you, and who also scored The Revolutionary, uh, could you talk about working with Michael and how you uh, discovered him? Yeah, uh, Michael was uh, very successful doing jingles and commercials in New York. And I ran into him because his wife was a friend of my sister. They went to Benning. And, uh, I met Michael and he was very, very bright guy, extremely sensitive guy and uh, very knowledgeable. And uh, we hit it off personally and actually Charles Webb was a friend too. Uh, so, uh, uh, so really I worked with Michael even uh, as I was writing sometimes. Uh, and. Uh, we worked a lot. It's not like he came out in the end and did the music. He was involved all the way through. We talked a lot about the emotional qualities that we wanted to get. And he turned out to be a bit of a genius. Uh, uh, it, was very, it was great. He was a very bright guy and very talented. I used him in the uh, revolutionary and uh, dealing and uh, a couple of other films like it. But then he went on, he worked for Rachelson and all kinds of people. Uh, he died young. Now, let's go all the way in the back. I hadn't seen the film before, and I I was really taken by all the performances that you got from all the actors. They're really, really incredible. And I noticed that, I mean, a lot of them are young, and that was their, I assume it's early on in their career. What do you think? What did you do to help craft those performances as the director? Like, how did you create the space for that to that magic to happen? Well, I did study acting before I did this film, and I had I understood uh, how actors work, and so it's a combination of creating a very safe space around them, so they feel free to try things and do things, and also to give them some very specific. Uh, uh, material to deal with, like when he's reading that uh, journal. Yeah. That was really my journal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that bed they were sitting on was my bed. Uh, and so it, a lot of it had to do with uh, 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 creating a space they could work in and give them clear uh, 
objectives of what they're uh, going for. I have to say that John, boy, in that last scene, we, we had, I had written it. It wasn't written as well as he did it. And I was sitting just out of frame, on the, high on the wall. I could have fallen off easily. I'd just get out of the camera. And it was so good what he did. I had my hand in my mouth to stop from all, you know, ruining the tape. Uh, he did a brilliant job on that. But it was set up for it. He was a, John is a great actor. Well, we're going to get to see some more John Voight in The Revolutionary. And just to set up The Revolutionary, at the time you were making this film, you were a bit of a revolutionary yourself. You were working in, with revolutionaries who were filming the Black Panthers. You want to talk about where your life was at when you were making the movie you were about to see? Oh, really? You're about to see this? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to tell one quick story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, the girl that I didn't want to marry a lawyer, uh, unbeknownst to me at the three months of our hard relationship, turned out to be a, a great heiress. The family owned Sears Roebuck in the Empire State Building. And so, literally, one day, uh, the Supreme Court ruled after an 11-year antitrust suit that they also own Western Union, the Western Union International, ruled that they had a monopoly on information going to Europe, the satellites and the tables. And uh, the Supreme Court, a big headline New York Times said, you know, Supreme Court orders divestiture, one of them. So I remember coming in that Sunday with the New York Times over my head, and I said to me, they got you now, Bill. And I, he was, I mean, he got along. You know, they got here. And he says, come with me. And he brought me into a side room. And he picks up the phone and says, Saul, yeah. Did you see the New York Times this morning? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you say? You take the satellites and I'll take the steel mills. Okay, you send your guys up on Tuesday. I'll send my guys down there. And that's when I became radicalized for life. It's much worse than anybody knew. Much worse. And Daniel uh, Hooper came out with a statement that the Panthers were the most, you know, dangerous group in the country. Uh, so I said, oh, they may, must have it right. And so uh, I ended up in Africa with Aldridge Cleaver and some North Koreans. And uh, that was a whole story. What you can read in Harvard, Hollywood, Hitman, and Holy Men. Which you can get. Also, uh, they, have, they have many copies of it in Larry Edmonds. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Hello, thanks for coming out to this. My name is Andras Jones, and I am the host of the World is Wrong podcast, where this season we've been featuring Paul Williams in a season called The Other Paul Williams. Paul's in town to promote his book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hit Men, and Holy Men, which uh, he'll be reading passages from at the uh, Larry Edmonds bookshop tomorrow and I gave out some flyers and if any of you want to get some of those flyers just let me know they didn't already get one and uh Paul out of it well I is Barry here Barry Gordon the star oh, of out of it is in the house I mean, when it went from shot to shot, I just remembered 
you know, the whole experience of shooting it. I almost died. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember in the limousine scene. Oh. When I was coming out of the limousine in the fantasy, and I hit my head oh. coming out, and I came up, my I, I said, ow. Mm. And I looked, and it, the, my whole hand was red. Um, and they rushed me to St. Joseph's. And, see, Callis director doesn't remember. No. <laughs> yeah. And I still have the stitches. So like this right now, so we can hear you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. But uh, um, uh, there was a lot of firsts in that movie for me. All right. First nude scene. The first nude scene. Only nude scene. Uh, driving a stick shift. Uh, that was the one time that I did that. Um, and not being very athletic. The football scenes, the swimming, all of that. Yeah, I, I think Paul was disappointed that I was not quite the varsity person that he was, but um, but we made it work. Strangely, you know, it had its own charm to hear, you know, I wrote it not with you in mind, and then the, it, it became a whole other uh, animal with, no, you know, a different yeah. than what I had imagined, but it worked just fine. Thank you. Thank you. So it was, it was fun. And of course, you know, every scene there really happened to me in real life almost. Oh, wow. Except not the fantasy scenes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that scene where you're in the shower with Christine. Oh, yeah. And you put the soap up through her bra. I mean, that little detail I remembered from, you know, from real life. Uh, uh, and at the end, when in real life that happened, it's like the only the, at the end of it you went, ugh. Yeah. I think I went, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so now wait, Paul. The, you told the story that that uh, the the uh, shooting the the gun scene in the bathroom is actually based upon a real thing that happened in your house. Ah, a lot yes. of stuff. The paddling really happened. All of it. Everything oh. really happened, except the last scene, of course. Yeah. Was in real life, my friend Bruce Vader, who was 15, and I went to Boy Scout camp with him, uh, and his father was a troop leader, and they inducted me into the Ipana Club by rubbing Ipana toothpaste on my genitals. Oh, oh. Uh, which is not pleasant. <laughs> but then when we came back to school, he, Bruce, was being tormented by this uh, big bully, Timmy Wall. And finally, uh, Bruce couldn't take it anymore. He went home, he got his father's shotgun, oh. sawed it off, came back to Massapequa High School, went into the urinal, and Timmy Wall was taking a piss. And he said, this is for you, Timmy. And he killed him. Oh, what? And then he walked away and walked on to Sunrise Highway. He wasn't running away from the crime, he was just dazed. And they put him in jail for 20 years. So you turned it into something more like I don't like violence. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't like violent films, but uh, well, it's based on that. Paul, I don't want to open up for a question, but for, I just would like you to set the uh, set the context of this film a little bit, because you know, we're watching it now, but I wonder, Every time I watch it, I get more out of it. But one of the things that really strikes me every time I watch it is how many films came after it that feel, whether they were influenced by it, by it or not, this is ahead of them. This is before Woody Allen. This is before The Graduate. This is before American Graffiti. This is before Carnal Knowledge. This is before so many films that explored a lot of this stuff. And I'd just like you to talk about like where you were, who you were hanging out with when you made when you started this film, and sort of what happened to it. and why it wasn't released until 1969. Hmm. Well, I recommend you buy Harvard, Hollywood, Hitman, Holy Men, and read about five chapters. Yeah, yeah. I can't go over them all. Yeah, but give a little abridged. Just look, set, the, set the context for us. Oh, well, I don't know what to say. I mean, Marty Scorsese was, and I, we both applied to be the two students in the NYU uh, first class uh, graduate students in film. And Marty said, you know, you really should study with Hayek Mnuchin, you know. And he was right, because I knew nothing about film history. I knew about photography, I knew about people, I knew about acting. But I was never a film buff. And, uh, and so when it came to writing, I really knew I didn't know very much, so I figured I'd write what I knew about. And in fact, every 
I just ended up with a hundred cards on the floor with real scenes that happened to me. And then the trick was to somehow get it into a story, write some connections. And it's funny because uh, a little later I was at Francis Coppola's house in Middle Valley and on the one wall of his writing room was metal with all these magnets on it. And he would attach the cards to the magnets. So I, that's the difference between low budget and high budget. The low budget goes down on the floor and you bring your neck. And when you got a big budget, you sit in the chair and you move the magnets around. But anyway, uh, what can I say? Uh, more context. Oh, well, what happened, of course, is Ed Pressman uh, tried for a year to get money from the studios for the picture. In the meantime, luckily, I made a documentary about Sean Zo. A French village, and it showed Stanley Kaufman showed it on his TV show in New York City with Hawaii by George Roy Hills, saying my picture was much better than George Roy Hills. And that, that night, I go down to Herbert Bergdorf Studios to start my learning about acting, and he happened to see that the film shown us all on TV the very night. I'm still 22 years old, but he says. Uh, and he was very impressed. So Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff took me under their wing for a year. I mean, Robert Duvall was in the class, a lot of good people were there. And I learned a lot. I mean, I, I wish that was better. I mean, I think I was pretty good with the actors. Absolutely. So, but I didn't know a whole lot a year before. <laughs> but the budget was like, what, $100,000? It was a little different. It was a, it was a bit more. Yeah. Uh, what happened was the budget was eighty thousand, but we speeded through the first two weeks. Uh, I want to make sure we finish the movie, and then Ed's mother loved what she saw. She was in a scene. She's in the, She's in the behind you. Uh, yeah, and she said, "Slow down. I'll give you more money." So when I was about twice that. But that's basically. I mean, I use that technique even later when I was doing. Nunzio for Universal, the budget was millions of dollars. I still made sure the first couple of weeks we had all the easy stuff so I get ahead of schedule. <laughs> then toward the end of the film, I'm over schedule, but what are they going to do? But, uh, uh, it's real. Oh, there's a funny story on Nunzio because we shot it in, in Brooklyn. I don't know. Any, anyway, the mob was our location managers. Uh, the, Cabo, the lieutenant, taking me around the quarter of Brooklyn. He was the, the location manager because uh, they had firebombed uh, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever. And when they came to us, they said, You don't want any bombing? We'll be your location manager. So they said, Fine. And, uh, and they took this job very seriously. And so we were falling behind schedule later in the film. And this guy, Sammy, Sammy, the Sammy, the Sammy, the Sammy, the Sammy, the and we were in the middle of a scene shooting. He did, and he walks right into the scene. Hey, you come on back here! And he wore two pistols, <laughs> and he takes me behind the set, and he says, uh, "Hey, you're on the budget." Uh, <laughs> I said, "Yeah." So when you're on the budget, I said, well, "What are you talking about, Sammy?" And he said, "What do you mean? You're not upset?" I said, well, is this your money, Sammy? He said, what? Are you working for Universal? What's your... He said, you don't give a fuck? <laughs> I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. And Sammy was wondering, well, you don't give a fuck. You don't give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd like, to, I'd like to give a few give a few people an opportunity to ask a question. And so, do you have a question down there? Yeah, we, you were talking a little, you alluded to uh, how you cast Barry. And then you had someone else in mind. Can you talk a little about how the genesis of your well, casting? Well, you know, I love I love Barry, and I know you know, and he did a wonderful job. The movie, that uh, uh, the truth is that I met John Voight after we had signed Barry, and we were very low budget, and I thought mm, Voight might be okay in this role. <laughs> And uh, but we already spent the money, and uh, I told John I'd make another movie with him. Wow! If he would play Russ, uh, 
And that's really how it happened. That was the compromise. John would play Russ, and I could do another movie. And of course, at that point, Barry was coming off of a thousand clowns. It's kind of oh, a major. Yeah, Barry was a name. Yeah. Yeah. John was unknown. So you had John in mind for that part? No. When I, I he, when I met John, I thought, oh, maybe he could have done the part. By that time, we'd already cast Barry. Yeah. You would have been much more athletic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have been a different film, but it may not have been as funny. Okay, you had one. You had a question down there. Okay, uh, I wanted to say I think I watched the film for the first time, and it seems like it's very much talking about the. It seems like the film's talking about the uh, kind of pretentious phase a lot of artists kind of go through. Do you think that's important for a lot of uh, students going into like uh, philosophy film or uh, whatnot to go through? And uh, what advice would you have for like young uh, artists and filmmakers? Well, I'll get to the second part of the question because I don't understand the first. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> but the second part is I just want to say that I was always a director. I never moved my way up to director. I was directing yeah. two-minute films, six-minute films, 12-minute films. You know, 20 minutes film, a feature, another feature. So I was always a director. So what I'm really saying is, my advice is to go make your film. That's what I would do. I'd learn. And you learn a lot, make you make lots of money. Hey, I never really liked any of the films I made until now, 50 years later, we're going to look at them and not see all the mistakes I made. That's true. You know, and I, you know, frankly, I loved, I had a good time at this film for the first time in the half century. I mean, I think that I don't think it's a phase you have to go through, but it's definitely a phase, at least that I thought the character was going through. Um, and he was he, he was very bright, but also very and I not realizing necessarily that it was autobiographical um, and not referring to it that way. But the way I saw the character, he was also very self-destructive, um, you know, that he kept ruining his best moments. Um, and I do know people like that, and I think that is something, I don't think it's a phase you have to go through, but I definitely think it's a phase that a lot of teenagers go through. They overthink, um, they, you know, they go to a place where you know, it looks like everything's coming into place, and they do something to screw it up. And, and I, I, to me, that was who this character was. And some of us, not just as teenagers, even into our twenties and thirties. I was going to say the book Harvard Hollywood Hitman and Holy Men is a, is a life story of well, blown I, opportunities. I wanted you to. Show, I wanted you to share the. Could you share because it's in the book. Uh, the, what Renoir, what Jean Renoir gave you as advice, because I feel like that, that might be useful. Oh, well, uh, while I was undergraduate at Harvard, I senior year I helped teach the photography course because I was a pretty good photographer. And uh, Jean Renoir came to give a speech, and because I was an undergraduate, kind of photographic, like they, they introduced me to him and I spent a little time with him and he said you know you got three movies in you that's all you have in a lifetime after you made your three movies you're just repeating yourself over and over again so he said make sure you don't lose yourself in movies make sure you live a life in between your movies and enjoy life and don't get too mesmerized by this distraction of movies. The movies are fun, but they're not life. And I really took that to heart. And so my whole life, I mean, you know, it's actually easier to have a career when you start a movie before your prior movie comes out. So you keep leapfrogging and you stay in business. It's much harder to make a movie that doesn't do well financially and then do another movie which doesn't do well financially. 
And I did another movie about the Duke Fine Wealth Fund. And then I made a whole career in movies that didn't do well financially. That's much harder to do. <laughs> okay, we, any other questions? Okay, we have one over there. Um, 50 some odd years later, this movie's still being shown here. Why do you think it resonates with people so much? Well, I, I think it, it's a, 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 there's a certain truthfulness about it. That it came from uh, truth, and uh, it was interesting. It was true, and it was interesting because the guy was a little bit more, away, you know, intellectual mm -hmm. than most kids, and he had a very active intellectual life while still being a teenager. And and then I think it was kind of beautifully made. So, on his own. It had its own reality, not a usual one for films. I mean, the little, you know, moments were allowed to go. It was almost Warhol-esque in certain. Yeah, you always got a chance to see what happened next and next and next in these difficult situations. You didn't simply go off to the next moment. So I think that, is that an answer? Yeah. That's an answer. The hardest scene for me in that movie was the last one. Oh, I know. Because I had no quite idea what I was thinking, and I was and, and watching it. I was trying to remember what was going on in my head in that last close-up. That, 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 that's very, very tricky and, and and demanding. Did I get what you wanted? Well, it, good enough. Good enough. I'm serious. I'm being serious. Good enough. I mean, what what I had in mind was that there's a social context in high school which you, which you believe in it's called belief it's the lowest level of consciousness <laughs> belief and when you're in high school you hey that's a captain of the cheerleaders that's the football star yeah. uh, these things are for real mm -hmm. and really i hope this film was a story of a guy moving through that who comes to see uh, uh, uh that's there's more to life than this. I wonder what's coming next. Right. And I think you got that. You know, when I was watching it, I couldn't help but think about the last scene, scene in The Graduate, which is totally, it's sort of flipped. Yeah. Like, the, it's the same, kind of the same shot, but it's sort of the opposite. The, at the end of The Graduate, it's sort of this bleak thing, where it feels like, oh, they're going into a cage. Whereas this, it feels like he's being let out of the cage. Right. But I couldn't, I, every time I see it, now, were, had you seen that kind of a shot in a film before, and that's why you were putting it in there, or was that? No, and, uh, I definitely this idea of moving through uh, a uh, basically a delusional, or it's not delusional, it's a low level of consciousness. The next movie was really about a guy who gets very ethical and moral and becomes a revolutionary. That's, that's what you'll be seeing in just a minute. That's the next movie. And he has to move through that. To get to a specific point, and it ends with a similar kind of—I don't want to give the ending away, but it's a very similar kind of ending. And the film after that was really about a guy who no longer believes, believes he no longer has ethics. He's just an egomaniac. Believe it or not, this is getting higher and higher. I mean, we have our people go to church. We have our lawyers and doctors. They're ethical. And then we have our presidents who don't give a damn about anything except their own power. Mm -hmm. So they, that's their ego sainthood. Mm -hmm. And that's the movement up in our society. The less masters you have, when you, in belief, you have, the Sufis would say you have 6,000 masters. But if you get rid of them and you become a professional, ethical person, you only have 3,000 masters. Mm -hmm. And if you say, fuck everybody, I'm just out for myself, you only have 1,500 masters. <laughs> So you can outmaneuver the people below you. The fewer inhibitions you have, the more you can move, the less you're inhibited, the higher you can go. Now in our society, that's about, we think that's high when you're an ego saint. But if you then, the next movies get into the, the realms beyond that. They're about the destruction of the ego and about the cultivation of the essence and how you move even higher to fewer and fewer masters until eventually you get very clear and objective. That's the ultimate goal of it all, to be just objective and to 
be able to feel your body up and down and to be able to feel your heart. That's where it's all. That's what the book's about. From Harvard to Hollywood to Hitman, the whole thing. That's sort of the trip. We have another. I don't know how much time we have here. What, how are we doing on time? We can do a couple more. Okay, just a couple more questions. There's one back there. Uh, Paul, you're retired now. Do any projects, or I, I assume, or do any I'm certain ever come to mind that you'd <laughs> like to work on? Are there projects you'd like to work on, Paul? You mean movie projects? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. No. <laughs> You're done. You left it all on the field. Well, I, I am interested in what the book is about. Yeah. I am interested in, uh, I'll probably write some more, but I'm, I, before I came to LA, I went to my old friends at Princeton and Harvard and a lot of very distinguished professionals in their fields, education, history, science. I've never seen more pessimism about the future of this country for the ninth zone last week or so. So I'm not one of these guys who say, hey, this is going on forever. I mean, I feel like Woody Allen said, you know, film is a distraction. It's something we do to have fun. It's not life. We do film so we don't think about dying. I kind of agree with him. He said, I won't give one penny for film preservation. You know, you can burn them when I'm dead. <laughs> well, uh... Yes. Uh, well, let's let's get let's get one last one last question back here. This is actually a question for, for both of you. First of all, congratulations! I probably uh, hadn't seen it before. And um, the performances were so natural, and those kind of Warholian takes you talk, you mentioned. Um, they seem the performances of those long takes, like the scene in the car, and you're about to kiss, and you don't kiss. They seem so natural and spontaneous. Can you talk about your rehearsal process with the actors or, or how you achieve that kind of spontaneity? A lot of it was due to my klutziness, uh, my natural klutziness, as Paul knows. I couldn't drive a stick shift, and so you would see the car. But I don't think that was supposed to happen. Uh, there were some other moments that probably weren't supposed to happen. Um, but I definitely think that Paul set a mood of of, uh, of verisimilitude. I mean, he wanted as he wanted real people, and um, and I that was kind of my instinct as an actor was was always to kind of go to that place and not not gild too much, not put too much um, on it. And um, it had a power that way. And thank you. So 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 it, it was a good it was a good marriage of 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 Paul's directorial sense, I think, and, and the way I kind of approached things. And I, I tended to approach things moment by moment. Um, and I I like doing that and, and and Paul gave me the you know the real freedom to do that. So so just to let you know, Paul has so many great stories. Uh, many of them are in his book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men. And he is going to be uh, at Larry Edmonds Bookshop tomorrow. What time is he going to be there? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. Uh, he'll be reading the book. He'll be, he'll be, we can have a lot more time to talk and, and ask questions. Uh, we do need to get to the revolutionary. Paul, did you want to say anything to set up the revolutionary just really quickly? It's all true. Uh, no, no, no. The only thing I would say about revolutionary is, again, it's an unusual picture from the point of view of pace and rhythm. I think it's very well shot and extremely well acted. But it's not, I, I don't like violence and I don't like hyping the drama, which is really, in many cases, that's what everybody does and there's nothing I mean, that's what Hollywood movies are. I think perhaps I'm on the wrong continent. <laughs> but it's, a, it's, a, it's like a European film. It's not your, you know, shoot em ups. And we do have to recognize, too, the team that Paul put together for this movie. Proud of it. Proud of it. Like, yeah. Because uh, the cinematographer was John Allison, who, of course, went on to direct Rocky and so many great other movies. 
became a director in his own right. A superb one. Michael Small went on to win Oscar nominations as a film composer. So I mean, Paul just put, he had an eye for talent um, in those early years and really put together great people who had great careers. And they can thank Gretchen Paul for fun. those careers. Yeah. And Gretchen did great. And John did really great. So um, so it was, you know, I ended up being an Ninja Turtle. But that's, that's enough. <laughs> so. Well, I just want, oh. That's why we need to wrap it up. I just want to say thank you very much to the New Beverly for having us here. This would never happen without this year. It is Hey folks. I think this is the end of this season of the podcast. So what can I let you know? Paul and I are going to continue working together in trying to develop his memoir into some sort of cinematic expression. So we'll see where that goes. And if anything comes of that, I'll make sure to let you know in some sort of bonus epilogue episode. Uh, There will be no strike breaking. We're recording this during the middle of a writer's strike. Nobody's writing anything. We're just talking. (laughs) And as far as this season goes, I sincerely hope you've been inspired to check out Paul's films and his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men. There's more to come. And if there are new developments in the world of Paul Williams, I'll record a bonus episode, like I said. and, uh, And I'll let you know. As far as what's going on with The World is Wrong, I don't know. I could come back with another season devoted to a particular director. There's a couple I'm mulling over. Um, And maybe I'll find a new co-host or co-hosts to continue the original exploration and celebration of maligned movies that I had intended. In the meantime, I recently finished the album of songs that I've been working on for about eight years, so I think that's going to take a good chunk of my attention. The record's called Recognize, Deescalate, and Decode, and I'll throw some music on at the end of these podcast episodes in the hopes of inspiring you to come over to my site, previouslyyours.com. It also works if you go to andrasjones.com. And sign up for my blog so you'll know when the record comes out and when I'm playing shows and just the other interesting things that I might be doing. I love doing the World is Wrong podcast. And I really hope this isn't the end. But if it is, it's a fitting one. Paul Williams is a fantastic avatar of knowing when to quit. Also of potentially foolishly walking away from a good thing and that is the liminal Schrodingerian place that I find myself in with this podcast and if you're following along then you're in that box with me and the proverbial cat Uh, please stay subscribed to the podcast because you never know what's going to come out of the box and If this is the end, I just want to say thank you for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. And since the podcast is evergreen, I believe the document is uh, worthwhile. Most of the films that we covered still need championing. So please turn your friends on to the show. And never forget that wherever we are, The world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about us. I tried to be a good time guy, but I was ill-equipped, yeah, because I was pussy-whipped. Well, before my prime And you tried to give me love But I didn't want your love Your love, your love
When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. 